911, what's the nature of your emergency? Welcome to the Tactical Living Podcast. I am your host, Ashley Walton. And I'm your co-host, Clinton Walton. Today, Clint and I are fangirling and fanboying a little bit because we are not sitting here alone today. We are sitting here with a retired police sergeant and the music radio DJ and host of the syndicated Law Enforcement Today radio show and podcast. And I have to say, the best radio voice we have ever had on our show. Mr. John J. Wiley, how are you? Uh, very, very well. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here with you. And thanks for the compliment about my voice. <laughs> Absolutely. I meant it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so for those, those of you, as you listen to this, it dawned on me as Clint and I have been members of the Law Enforcement for Life Facebook group for quite some time, I could not for the life of me find much information about this gentleman that we're, we're sharing time and space with right now. And John, if it's okay with you, if you could just take the listener Back to a little bit about where your journey began when it came to being in law enforcement at all. Okay. Um, well, first of all, my name is John Joseph Wiley. Uh, Jay is a family nickname. So I go by John J. Wiley. Uh, I was in actually a high school seminary in Richmond, Virginia. I thought that I had the vocation to be a priest. And for very we- various reasons, one of which the whole celibacy thing, I, it just wasn't for me. And I knew immediately afterwards that I, that I wanted to go into law enforcement. And I was probably about 16 going on 17. Um, and for the typical reasons that everybody gives, that I know it sounds corny and I know it sounds goofy and stereotypical, I wanted to help people. Uh, that's why I went into law enforcement and pursued that career. Wow. That's to, to hear that you wanted to go from this seminary and then you transitioned into actually deciding to be going to law enforcement. That's, that's a huge shift. So well, how- it is. And I, I jokingly say it's because I, I went on a date and had some beer and I was like, Oh, my, my entire priorities changed. Just to <laughs> put it in a short way. <laughs> that's awesome. So how long were you a police officer for? Uh, just under 12 years, I was hurt in a, a, a violent line of duty incident um, and wound up having three surgeries, a couple steel plates put on my right hand and wrist and was retired at the ripe old age of 33. Wow. That's a, um, sounds like it's unfortunate that that happened to you. So well, the guy was trying to shoot me in the face with my service weapon. So uh, I'm, I'm glad it, I, I'm very grateful today that this is all that occurred from it. He's alive, I'm alive, uh, and I have a totally fused right hand and wrist. And other than that, you know, I, I can't complain. That's pretty crazy. Like, I'm just sitting here soaking that story in. Um, if you can just talk the listener through a little bit about before you, you did end up, you know, not practicing anymore in policing in the community, what was the biggest struggle that you faced as as an officer excuse me while I was on the job yeah the hardest thing I think the hardest thing is um, managing time and managing stress uh, in, in Baltimore I was worked a very busy busy district in a very busy sector and post and we were the mindset back then that 
Um, it, it was our policy uh, that we were allowed to take a half hour lunch break, but no one did because mm-hmm. we didn't want our side partner to have to handle calls on our posts mm-hmm. and then wind up some of them to handle calls on their posts. And it was a cascading series of events. So trying to manage the workload, which was unmanageable because you had to respond to everything, distress and the violence, uh, it was always difficult and always a challenge. So surrounding the time management aspect of it, what what worked and what didn't work for you at that time to really go where you wanted to go? I don't know that there was anything that worked or didn't work. It was uh, constant adjustments. Uh, one day you work, we might have 30 calls for service. Another day you might have 45. Uh, and other days we had summers where backup was not available. So you've had to handle everything by yourself. And, and that's just the way it was. So it was, I think, the best way to describe it was trying to find ways to make it less of a failure. Uh, there were never successes. It was always trying to go from one extreme incident to another to handle routine calls for service uh, and, and just make sure you had everything taken care of all the time. So you're, you're living your life in this state of almost high anxiety of just going call to call to call. And it's just, it's nonstop. It was nonstop Clinton. And it was literally, I remember, um, coming out of the academy, being sent to the Northwest District of Baltimore, and I drove through one of the busiest sections of the city, and I was just thinking to myself, am I prepared for this? And uh, the truth was I thought I was well-armed with all the information I needed, all the training, everything. I had no idea. Um, I jokingly say I was, you know, I had razor-sharp creases and no stains on my uniforms, because and that's how people could tell you're a rookie. And it was, I remember the first DOA call I had. I remember the first badly decomposed body call I had. I remember the first murder I had where the person died in front of you. I I remember those things. I don't remember them vividly every day because thankfully my mind has become stuff of other stuff. Um, So rarely do I think about those things. But the reality was you had no idea what was heading your way every day. And that's a story that we hear so much with a lot of the clients that we work with is just this constant and not being able to to clock out. I mean, as an officer, I know that there is never a such thing as being able to clock out. When Clint and I go to restaurants, even he's so vigilant and just the the nuances and the everyday lifestyle is is definitely just that, a lifestyle. And I appreciate you showcasing that because I know as you listen to this as you sit there maybe in your cars driving or you're at home, this is a lifestyle that a lot of us live, but not a lot of people decide to openly talk about. So I appreciate you sharing that. And one thing that that I'm just curious about, given the situation that you had to deal with, with, you know, being shot at in the way that you were, how, how did the effects of that trauma and violence impact your mental health? Well, uh, let's start from the beginning. Uh, I was involved in four shootings in, in just under 12 years. And the Jeez. first two were over very, very quickly. And uh, people ask you to, to describe why you did what you did or didn't do. And neither, neither one of the first two shootings did I fire a shot. It was 
just, uh, you just knew it wasn't right. Uh, the second two were just totally different matters. And the, the third one was a, a guy who was wanted for murder where he took the victim's Corvette um, and he wound up hitting me head on and we had a running gun battle in the middle of the street. And he was trying to reload the, a Colt 45 semi-automatic and I was armed with a 38 revolver. And I remember running down the street at this guy. And in the background, you could hear, I could hear my partner for the, uh, you know, the car, almost like he was in a television in another room saying, don't get out, don't get out. Mm -hmm. And down the street, I could hear other police firing. And I remember thinking I'd fired four shots out of a, a six-shot revolver, and I was in the middle of the street with no cover. There was absolutely nowhere to go, and this guy was trying to reload, and I was thinking, what do I do? Because if I don't take him down, I'm, I'm exposed. Mm -hmm. And the immediate thought was just run up and tackle him, which what is what I did. And I didn't realize at the time, but he was having difficulty reloading because I'd shot him in the wrist and didn't know it. Hmm. Um, so he, he wound up doing life and he's still in the prison as far as I, I know now. The second one, second to last one or the fourth one, rather, was a typical unarmed man you hear about in the news all the time. Police shoots unarmed man. And it was a car thief. Uh, he had a load of drugs in the car. He was moving around quite a bit before the end of following him. And he wrecked. And I was able to get him out of the, the vehicle. And I pulled my revolver at that point and had him down to the ground and was getting ready to reholster my revolver. And he got up with me on top of him and was screaming. And before I could reholster a revolver, uh, he wound up getting a hold of it. And we wound up fighting over the gun. And the gun was turned towards my face and, and rounds were being fired off. And I remember thinking to myself, this guy's trying to kill me. That this guy has no other intentions other than to kill me. And I, I immediately thought, and I'm, I'm going to clean it up, but it was that I'm going to die, but it's not going to be tonight. And it won't be because of you. And I was prepared at that point to do whatever I had to do. If I had to bite his eyeballs out, I would do whatever it took. To survive and uh, fortunately yeah he was grazed in the abdomen abdomen took off and um we both survived and i thought i sprained my wrist and it turns out i had catastrophic cartilage uh damage in my wrist and uh multiple surgeries and my career was over jeez and so it did change me physically and, and mentally all those things changed me physically and mentally on that mental side, that had to have been really hard for you to later revisit and go step through step of what you had to do and to make that decision. How did that affect you long term? Um, well, it, it's hard to put a finger on one incident saying this is what caused this. You know, I did that for a long time. And when I say I did that, I, I wound up. Um, trying to say to myself that I didn't cause these things to happen to me, that I'm not at fault. So therefore I'm not responsible for doing something about them because I had begun to spiral, uh, for lack of better words, out of control. Uh, I was not sleeping. Uh, I was having nightmares. I'd hear gunshots right to the point where you're starting to fall asleep. I hear a gunshot right next to my face and I'd wake up. And I wasn't eating. I was drinking too much until I passed out every night. 
I was isolating at home, wasn't talking to my wife. We were arguing. I was irritable all the time. I began losing weight. Um, and that's the, the short story of it. So what happened was uh, back in 19, this is to say right around 1990, I was first diagnosed with what we call PTSD. And I don't refer to it as a disorder. I refer to it as an injury um, because that mindset that I'm not responsible for what happened to me, therefore I'm not responsible for dealing with it and, and doing the therapy I need to do to get better uh, was a trap that, that cost me my marriage and spent, it cost me many years with, apart from my children. So that's why I try not to get into this is what caused that. And the best way I can explain it is it's like having an arterial bleed and, and not dealing with it saying, hey, this is how it cut me. How can we not fixing him? How can we not deal with him? Yeah. Meanwhile, yeah. I'm bleeding over everybody else. It's important to me. Hmm. So you're talking about really what sounds like the, the lowest of, of what had happened as a byproduct of, of your career. Can you, can you talk a little bit about what might have been that aha moment for you that had really started to make the shifts to turn this into something that is so empowering, like what it is for you today? Well, I've been, when things got really, really bad, I've been retired. When I, I firmly believe that being on the job still and being with uh, my coworkers and my blue family, as I call them, that was a big part of the coping skills and mechanisms I had to uh, be at my normal, my new normal. And then when I was retired and, uh, you know, 33 years of age and like, what do we do now? And I felt like a total... Uh, unwanted cast castaway and um, things at home really began to suffer. And I remember what was a turning point for me was my now ex-wife had said, I'm leaving. I'm taking the kids. I'm going back to Buffalo, New York, where she's from originally. And you have to find a way to get better or else your marriage is over. And that was, I, I knew that there was no, plea bargaining. There was no um, trying to manipulate. There was none of that. It was, I'm totally responsible for what has happened to my family and I have to find a way to deal with it or else there'll be no family. And that's what prompted me to finally try to start uh, find a way to get better. And back then there really, there really weren't a lot of resources available back then. If there was one resource available to you, then what would that have been? Um, there was a uh, a program in Florida that was for law enforcement people only uh, that uh, has since closed. And um, that was the one. And when the people there talked to me in a way that they understood what I was talking about and they'd been through the same things I'd been through, and they weren't going to coddle me and they weren't going to um, co-sign my BS. They were, that, that's when the healing started. Um, and that's where learning becomes self-aware. And these terms we hear so much nowadays, mindful. And uh, there's a checklist of things I, I need to make sure I'm okay with all the time um, so that I maintain a great quality of life. When I say that, I, I go where I want, I do what I want. My wife and I travel. Uh, I'm happily married. I've been sober almost 28 years. And I found a way to take this experience and provide a platform for other people 
um, who are struggling and to learn that a I'm not alone and b life gets better. Yeah, you're you're speaking right to the center of my chest right now and using the term um, like being selfish. We all think there's this negative connotation associated with being selfish and. If we, if we can't understand different ways to self-identify and to actualize, even if that means a ritual first thing every morning, it really changes the trajectory of our mindset and really mindfulness throughout the entire day. So I appreciate you showcasing that. And I know now with you using your radio platform, it, it's really really allowing you to touch and to speak to so many people that might otherwise not be able to have a space to share this common theme. So how is it that you were, you were able to take that and, and use your own healing as a voice and as a message for other law enforcement families and law enforcement officers and their families? Well, I'm, I do uh, uh, quite a bit of what you two are doing is when I'm on the radio show, excuse me, which is now uh, we have 33 affiliate stations across the United States. It's a once week show and I, I make it available to, Law enforcement officers, first responders, uh, their spouses, survivors, whether it be siblings or spouses or parents, uh, and, and open up to victims of crime to, to tell their stories. And when uh, we're doing a show, it's not about me. It's not about what I've been through. It's about what they're going through. It's about, because they're telling their story. Um, and when people tell their story from their perspective of what they went through, to use an old phrase, what happened, what is like, and what is like now, then you can't argue with that. It's not like people lecturing. It's people telling you, hey, this is what happened. And inevitably, whether it be a police officer, a uh, surviving spouse of an officer with killed in line of duty, uh, a child, a, a survivor of a horrible crime, a parent of someone who's lost in, in a crime, when they tell their stories, there's some inspiration that everybody can take and apply to parts of their life. Doesn't matter whether they're in law enforcement or not. When they hear about Jason Shekely, who was uh, rear-ended as a rookie officer and severely burned, and when he tells his story uh, about what he does now, and, and he says, look, I gotta find a reason to be motivated and excited every day. When I took that, I'll never forget him telling me that in an interview, and I know other people have been affected that, by that as well. So whether it be someone who is a, um, a nurse or a firefighter or a police officer, or military, uh, or high school student, they all have struggles. They all have their crosses to bear. So when they hear about someone who's been through literally hell and back and they say, hey, here's something that helps me, that's something they can use. And I think that creates a lot of power for everybody. Yeah, that, that's super inspirational. And I know a message that so many people listening to this would get amped up about because it's, it's difficult to find a space of encouragement in, in this particular lifestyle, let's say. We, there are so many negative things that we're exposed to on a routine basis, be it from, from other agencies, be it from the media, the general public who's often misinformed because of the media. So I think right. having a safe space like what you've created is of so much value and it's so needed as really the container for a lot of people to know that just it, it's okay to come in and to have this common space. So how can people listen to the, that are listening to this get involved and, and really consume more of your own content? Well, you can go to our website, lawenforcementtoday.com. 
Uh, and on there, you'll find a, a page where all the past episodes of the radio show are as a podcast. You can subscribe, get updates uh, about guests as they come available. Um, of course, that whole process is 100% free. If they happen to be in an area where one of the affiliate stations is on our show, they can hear it beforehand. It goes to radio first, then it becomes available as a podcast. And once an episode goes online, it stays there. We have, uh, I think, 172 episodes now in our third year. Um, and, and the stories, they're, they're not ending. Um, and one of the things I think that's very, very important, you, you made a great point, Ashley, is that, and I believe for far too long, we in law enforcement have allowed other people and relied on other people to tell our stories. And they've done a horrible job. They always have. Uh, but lately, it's become more and more biased, and it's become more and more politically motivated uh, to blame the police, which is not new. That's something that's been going on for a long time. So it's up to us, meaning me, you, and Clint, and other people, to say, no, we're not taking it anymore. We're going to tell you the reality of what life is like. Because if people don't understand, how would they know? Uh, if you listen to primetime television news, you're not going to get the straight story. You just won't. Yeah. And you'd be totally uninformed. Yeah. And, and that's exactly right. And, and as you're saying this, like, I want to jump up and just say, fuck yes. Like, I'm just yeah. like, yes, this is exactly <laughs> what we want to do because that stigma is so there. All of us are intimidated to put our stories out there. We think we're doing something wrong by doing it, but well, we are. And, and part of it is too, Clinton. When I said to you, you know, that shooting that ended my career where I was willing to do whatever it took to survive. Look, for a long time, I wouldn't tell people that because there's a, 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 a stigma we have in society that we're not supposed to be violent. Mm -hmm. Look, I don't want to be violent. I don't want to be described as a violent man. I'm not described as a violent man. Mm -hmm. I, don't, I, don't, I don't view myself that way. But I know after years of police work that I am capable, if needed, of extreme violence. And it's not my choice. Mm -hmm. I will do what it takes to make sure I go home to my family. Um, and, and hopefully there won't be a lot of legal consequences, but if there are, that, that's the way it has to be. I'm going to go home. Absolutely. And, and, that... I don't, and if we don't tell people that, then how will they know? They just hear police shoots on our man. I'm sorry, that unarmed man was trying to kill me with my own weapon. And you and I both know that that's many police. United States every year since I was a rookie are killed with their own service weapons and fights. It's, yeah. it's not the, the high powered rifle. It's not the, it's, it, it's knives and it's their own service weapons. And we have got to become better at saying, look, it was him or me. And I did what I had to do to survive. And, and, I don't have that conversation with a lot of people because quite honestly, they haven't earned the right to hear it and they don't understand it. So don't talk about it. Yeah. And, and I think that as a society, as a whole, you made such an excellent point because it is our responsibility. If we want to make the change as, as a collective unit together, we need to start to desensitize the community when it comes to the reality of, of what this situation looks like, because most people in most professions do not go to work and have to have this daunting thought of that type of consequence of just being able to survive. Most people don't have to work 
to survive the way that first responders and military service members have to. And I, I appreciate you opening up and, and explaining it the way that you did. And I want to be very respectful of your time here. So to wrap it up, what would you like to share that maybe we haven't touched on yet? The one thing that I would really uh, like to talk about is if someone is a first responder, a law enforcement officer, corrections, dispatcher, EMT, firefighter, and that they're going through, and anybody else who's going through uh, the symptoms of post-traumatic stress, and drinking too much, uh, self-medicating, and, and feels like they're losing everything and is consider seriously considering giving up, I want them to understand that two things. Number one, it does get better. Uh, most people would know, have no idea uh, what I went through when they look at me. And I'm, I, I'm happy about that. Um, and I don't answer yes to people's preconceived notions and stereotypes of what post-traumatic stress disorder is. Uh, I know what I went through, um, and I'll tell people. But the person who's sitting there thinking of ending it all, I want them to understand that, that life does get better beyond this point. What that means, I don't know. How you get there, I don't know, but I do know that it gets better. And the last thing is, you know, if you watch professional football or baseball or uh, women's basketball, where it might be, these, these players who are so, so good at what they do, uh, they didn't start off good at what they do. They started off miserable. They start off the same way the rest of us do. But they all have a team of coaches and trainers, and they have people that assist them, and they have teammates that they rely on to become really good at their craft. And yet for a lot of these first responders, especially police uh, and the law enforcement world, when they're struggling, they think they need to handle themselves, that they don't need to talk to anybody else. They don't have to rely on anybody else. They don't need coaches and teammates. Uh, they do. And, and one of my biggest sources of, of, of hope is, is, for lack of better words, uh, a spiritual relationship with a God that I understand, that I can rely on. So I'm much more open today about, uh, and I'm still kind of a closed book, but I'm much more open today about saying, hey, I need help. If Willie Mays needed help, if Hank Aaron needs help, if uh, uh, any uh, the thing Tony Stewart from NASCAR, whoever it might be, if they have a team supporting them, then I can rely on someone else to help me to have a good life. I love it. Yes, I love it. That's so powerful. And I'm Clint and I are both sitting here, and and you can't see us, but we're both just looking at each other like heck yes, like yes. This is somebody with so much wisdom and experience who who walks the walk and talks the talk and, and does it in a way that's so genuine, just based out of pure experience and learning the lessons through life the way that you have. And I'm so honored and so grateful that you were able to share this time and space with us. And I know that your message is going to impact so many people. And I'll go ahead and I'll link your contact information in the show notes below so that people can feel free to just click right on there and be channeled straight into your website to consume more of your content. So Clinton, I thank you so thank much. Thank you very much. Yeah. And we it appreciate it. It's my pleasure. You. And thank you. Anything I can do to help you all, please let me know. Really appreciate that, Jay. Thank you.